We're in this wonderful passage of the Gospel in Romans 10 today. And I want you to know that we're going to skip over a lot of things that are wonderful because there's so much stuff in this. But let's ask God to bless the time. Lord, we're grateful. To be in a company of people desiring to know your word, we'd ask that you would be guiding us in it. In your son's name, amen. Well, we're in Romans 9, and if you didn't get sermon notes there in the foyer, we have the text and the, I don't know, it's not an outline, this is sort of stuff on the side. Occasional annotation, I guess, annotations, that word. And if you are interested in re-hearing something, remember all these things are up on SoundCloud by Sunday afternoon. And if you say, where on SoundCloud, Evan Bruce Wilson, and you'll start to see playlists. One of them is Sermons 2014. So all of the sermons are there, except for the ones in 2013, which are in Sermons 2013. But I started the text off in chapter 9 of Romans. Now, you've probably been through Romans. We've had Bible studies through Romans. We've preached out of Romans. Last time I was here was maybe six years ago in this passage. But I know it came up during the week sometime, and, and uh, uh, it's natural for you when you're talking about God's work and salvation that you end up in Romans 10 one time or another. You know, the whole book of Romans is designing to convey to both Jew and Gentile that we're all under the power of sin and only under the power of faith, not under the power of the law, will man be saved. And so he starts to discuss it, you know, out of that often argued over Romans 9, he says here at the end of Romans 9, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued righteousness, which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith. But as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. And we don't know, this quote is out of Isaiah. It's over here on the side, Isaiah 28. Oddly enough, neither the Septuagint nor the Hebrew text has the word uh, ashamed in the Hebrew text, but... Uh, um, the others, it seems like Paul's operating out of a translation we don't have uh, access to. Uh, there is a, and he may have been doing it rhetorically, in other words, changing the words which were a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation into a stumbling stone. Go from sure foundation to something you trip over. But that's precisely what the law had become, something that people tripped over. 
And this is one thing about law, what is a number of things about it, representing righteousness, it often becomes that which people can't resist suggesting must be the path to righteousness if it represents righteousness. It's too easy for us in any church or religion to, when we don't believe adequately, when we don't have faith, he says that it did not they did not pursue it through faith, so that was their problem. They stumbled over it. But most people find themselves to try to make their faith by their application of works. They try to build on what they do, hoping it will trickle back to their benighted soul and make them a strong believer. Or at least placate the God sufficiently that your lack of faith your lack of faith isn't noticed because you're striving so hard to keep the works. But that's precisely when the works become a stumbling stone. You've tripped. So you really want to say to anyone, Jew or Gentile alike, and you're either one of those, um, it's obvious that I've got to be thinking about faith here. Because faith is the thing that will redeem you from a life based on works. It will give you righteousness. And it will just cause you to stumble in your life. And the way you raise your kids, the way you run your churches, the way you function in life will be something everyone is tripping over. That's what the stories you get later on in everybody's life who was raised in the church is you know what kind of, oh yeah, they had this rule about fill in the blank. Or well, they were all uptight about this, or they were all had their knickers in a twist because of, you know, and there's, there, everybody's looking back at all these attempts, probably, you might say, dear-hearted, loving righteousness, zeal for the Lord, and they couldn't resist the lazy man's guide to righteousness, which is make a rule. But God's path to righteousness is only faith, always faith, and it's a stumbling, not a second-level almost as good as it's a fall on your face if you pick up the law you will fall on your face you will fall on your face in your family you will fall on your face in your church you will fall on your face before God and not in a good way he goes on to say brethren verse 10 chapter 10 verse 1 my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. Now, he's already told you what the enlightenment is. That is, faith and justification from God through faith. They have a zeal. Most people who are into law-keeping... It takes a lot of zeal. Matter of fact, that's what's part of the stumbling. You think you're a pretty impressive act of piety. You're involved in the church in every possible way. When they have a call go out to help someone do something, you're there. You're involved in every program. That's why we don't have programs here at All Souls. That's why we don't have a membership here at All Souls. Is so the pious can't join stuff is to keep them at a distance because they really, really, really have a zeal. 
And they will take over a church if you give them any access, any handle. We're slippery here. No, we don't know what we're doing. That's to keep you from getting control of the church. They have a zeal, not enlightened. Verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. Through what? The righteousness that comes through God is not the righteousness I offer God on the basis of my works. That I trot out there and say, are you placated? Are you happy with me yet? There's a righteousness that comes from God by faith, through faith. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified. I want you to know, and I mentioned this at our Bible study last month, <coughs> earlier this month, on the ethics of the new covenant. You really don't actually have a choice between living under the law, uh, the old covenant, and the new covenant. You can go pretend. You know how some people like Lord of the Rings? They're dorks. You know the dorks. Um, you know the ones that dress up in dork clothes and go to the park and fight with foam swords? Um, they are, um, what's that, the Society for Creative Anachronism? People who want to wear chain mail and that sort of thing? Well, Jesus loves them. But that's what it would be for you trying to live under the Old Covenant. It's not there. There are no medieval castles really repelling sieges anywhere. And you really don't need chainmail. You really can't live under the Old Covenant. God's not involved with that anymore. It's the end of it. Other places, he said, it has become obsolete. In Ephesians, he says, it is abolished. If God abolishes the covenant he was one half of, you don't get to go trick it out like you still had it alive and get to live by the law. Understandably, the Jews at this point, yeah, the temple was still standing. Judaism was still functional. That's not around anymore. Christ is the end of the law. Because the only path to the righteousness of God, and available to everyone, is faith. So really, faith and works is a dividing point between what is and works, and what is an illusion completely. It's not even there for you to pick up. God doesn't say, oh yeah, keep my, keep my old covenant, that'll be just as good, almost, not quite. But there's, you know, there's the Christians, and then there's the Jews, and, you know, down from there. No, it's Christ in faith or nothing. You don't have that option. Now, what I'm saying, and like Paul was saying, is that faith is um, kind of a crisis point. And people know, they start talking about faith, oh, yeah, like the disciples did. Oh Lord, increase our faith. Everybody ever say, you know, I really, you know, I, got, I, think, I think there's room for doubt. You know, everybody's always thinking about the degree of faith they have. A few things that are obvious about faith. Um, 
It divides you into two camps, you who believe and you who don't. <laughs> well, isn't that a little obvious? Yeah, but sometimes those that don't seem to think it's our fault. Or somehow the church hasn't done enough to convince you to believe. Just suffice it to say, you don't believe. You don't believe. Not my problem. You don't believe. I was at the grocery store. I'm saying this because last night Jake and I were talking over cigars, admittedly, about personal illustrations in the sermon. And he said it was like it was like gold, rhetorical gold when you go. I was I was saying to so and so the other day, I'd be like, what? Real gossip? In a sermon? I can't believe it. Okay, I was at, at Rose Hours. I mean, this is really personal, really real. I was standing behind a guy who was buying a case of beer, a bag of salad. It wasn't a good dietary choice. Let's just say that they were, and it looked like he was a businessman going back to his hotel room, and he had a bag of salad, a thing of dressing, and a case of beer, balanced a, and he proceeded to buy seven or eight lottery tickets. I said, well, so these people do exist. These people who buy lottery tickets. Now I know, I'm not preaching against, you may buy lottery tickets, I don't have any problem with you buying lottery tickets, but you know what happens when you do, you know precisely what happens that moment. Now you're not a gambler, you're not somebody who's just always, oh, I've got to get out there and, you know, hawk the family TV so I can go buy some, you know, gamble at the casino. You're not that problem. You just enjoy gambling. Maybe it's Texas Hold'em, or but with a lottery ticket, boy, that's like heaven, okay? It's not like, what can I win at Texas Hold'em? It's a $5 buy-in, and maybe you might make seven bucks, you go home to your wife all proud. Look, I got seven dollars. But with the lottery, if you win, do you know how much money you make? Let's just say lots. So what do you do? You sit around and you think of all the stories of what's going to happen when you win. John Barry once said, yes, somebody has to win, but it doesn't have to be you. But that we think it has to be us while it's still an unknown. Now, what, I'm, what does this have to do with Romans 10? Not even illustrated in gambling terms. Well, gambling is that wonderful moment of temporary faith. Like people go to church on Sunday morning. That's what that guy had just done. He went to church. His faith became alive for, that, for those brief moments until disappointment washes over him later, halfway through that case of Keystone, and then he drinks the other half because he lost his bet for a future. We think that somehow, since it's so insisted on that faith is central to Christianity for all things, righteousness, salvation, that somehow we got to cheapen that faith, cheapen the grace, cheapen the faith, make it just easy to get at. 
And it disturbs us a little bit when the parable of the good of the sower is out there and people who just jump on it, like the lottery ticket. Oh, this is great. Receive it with joy. Hardship comes, they fall away. People who receive it with joy and spring up and then the delight of this world and cares for money spring up and they get choked off. We don't kind of like this because there's a sensation of, of the, the conversation turns to eternal security at that point. Could I lose my salvation? We're so convinced that somehow the lazy man's guide to enlightenment ought to be so just easy to get at. Faith should be easy to accomplish. We think, why isn't there just a flat-out good, absolute argument for the existence of God, the truth of Christianity, that could be jotted on an index card? Because if it was two pages, I probably wouldn't read it. But if it's on an index card, yeah, I could commit myself to that. Or I've heard Christians say, why doesn't God just prove himself? You know, write it in the sky, you know, every morning. For everyone. What, what would it say? Uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, you know, the four spiritual laws up there in the heavens every morning. We want faith. We want faith handed to us in grace with us really not being measured in our faith. But faith has reached some place that if you haven't reached it, I'm just saying, hey, you, you just admit to yourself, I don't believe. Not my problem, it's your problem. Not God's problem either. He's God. He knows he exists. He doesn't have to worry about it. You're the one who's ashamed. You're the one who does not like what it would mean. That's why Christianity has to trick itself out in the most popular way possible because everybody's so embarrassed about being a Christian that we want to remove a large... I was watching with my wife last night. She was falling asleep, actually. Uh, the, the Christian channel. And I, I forget which ministry it was. It was not one I was... You know, but the, there was a black vocalist on, and she was just going to town. Big white choir behind her. Singing pretty well. And I was saying, you know, what if a non-Christian stumbled across this channel? What would they think? Oh, be embarrassing. Well, I, I was used to it. I like black choirs. I like uh, that kind of music, like gospel. I grew up in a Christian church. But I also know that when you finally get down to, other than the cultural things, the church is always five years behind, ten years behind the world in trying to have it relate to what's happening. Musically, it always is just awful. Just awful. Because, you know, you go to a Christian rock concert, you haven't been to a rock concert. You've been to a Christian rock concert. You know when you're dealing with... You know, Christian hipsters, are they all right, but they're not quite real hipsters yet, you know? We're trying to make faith... as easy to obtain as just that quick purchase of a lottery ticket. 
It's a temporary belief. You go off to Christian camp, you go off to the church, you go off to a conference, you have this moment where you willfully suspend your disbelief and you make plans with Jesus like you made plans to spend the 62 million. It's not here to, we're not here to create faith in you. We're here to declare Jesus Christ to you. Your works can't please God. But what does please God? Oh, Hebrews, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For anyone who would draw near to God must first believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith, your faith, your frame of mind, I can't do anything, your frame of mind, I can't do anything, becomes a pursuit of God. You turn toward him. You seek him. He doesn't have to pony up with more proofs. He doesn't have to give you another C.S. Lewis book to read so you just finally have Christianity convinced in you. Well, I think there's good arguments out there. I love good arguments. They're fun. But you know how rarely people believe the argument? It's mostly the message of Jesus Christ in a searching heart that they come to believe. They need to know what it is they ought to believe. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. In other words, you, you will have a life, you will have to perform all the law. It says in another place, if you violate one portion of the law, you violate the whole law. So you've got to keep the whole law, but the, Keeping the law, that's how you will have your life dictated to you. But the righteousness based on faith says, so not the law, do not say. First, what it, Paul's a little confusing here. He says, it says, do not say, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Untie that sentence. There are certain things that are central to the gospel. No, doubt doesn't make you cool. It just means you're stupid. Stupid, he called me stupid. Well, if you, if you think that doubt is a place to be, that, well, can I have my doubts? Oh, I'll answer them. They're questions, for heaven's sake. You think you might pursue it? Oh, I thought it was kind of cool to have doubts. That's why agnostics like being agnostic. I just don't know. Get an answer. Figure it out. Grow up. Don't say who will ascend into heaven. Don't question whether Jesus Christ has gone to heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or, you know, really, can anybody come back from the dead? Don't question that because that's about the Lord's resurrection. What does it say? It says, do not say this. Don't state, make, make statements of doubt. If you're wondering what faith involves, you don't make statements about the questions you have. Like your faith isn't finished yet, and somehow, if with enough time and a big, big enough worship team with more violins and maybe a drum set up here, you would finally feel jazzed enough about Jesus. 
uh, Jesus would get used to sign up. He died a couple thousand years ago, and he was raised a couple thousand years ago, and he went to heaven a couple thousand years ago. Done. Finished. We don't need a better worship team because ours is really good, ladies. Both of you. I'm married to half of it, so. What does it say? Do you feel any inclination that your faith be made easy for you? I think faith is easy. Depends on what your heart wants. Depends on where you're feeling shame. If you're feeling turning away from the world is going to really be embarrassing because, my gosh, they have standards over there in the world. And so you're looking for a religion... And most religions are legalistic. More, most religions are works-oriented. So, and, and most of the world accepts that. They don't accept the person who just believes. They want the person who goes through all the religious bells and whistles and still holds to all that the world says. That's why you can have a liberal churchman, somebody in an Anglican church or Episcopal church, who... Uh, who denies the deity of Jesus Christ, denies the gospel entirely, and dresses in a skirt with a chasuble and a funny hat and swings incense. And he looks like a lunatic on what he does religiously. And the non-Christian world has no problem with him. None. You will not be embarrassed in front of the world with that kind of religion. It can be as silly as you want it to be as long as you don't obey Jesus Christ. But if Jesus Christ says, thus, this is true, and you say, because my Lord has said it is true, this is what I believe, because you believe him, you will not be popular. So, prepare yourself. This is not a problem of faith, it's a problem of your will regarding it, and what you value. And if you value your standing in the world, you will never come to Jesus. And I don't want to make Christianity so valuable to you that you finally say, oh, is there room for cool people like me in the Christian faith? What does it say? Verse 8, the word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That near Falling from your lips, springing from your heart. It's what you naturally know. It's what you experienced in Christ. You know what the gospel is because when you became a Christian, you knew what you believed. If you've just been attempting to be morphed into a Christian circumstance by figuring out things as you go and figuring out what kind of terminology Christians use and, and kind of writing up a testimony that kind of, well, maybe when I was 13, I at camp, I became a Christian, maybe. Don't you know when these things happen? These things like faith in the living God? You know at least the word is near you. It's how close it is to you. It's not how close it is to C.S. Lewis or some other apologist for the faith. 
doesn't matter how much you're... Have you ever noticed that some people have a... Their faith is in the faith that their pastor has? Well, my pastor believes it really strongly, so I trust him. People fall away from the Lord when their pastor is caught in some indiscretion. I don't plan on being caught in some indiscretion. But people fall away. Why? Because their faith wasn't in Jesus Christ. It was in their pastor's faith. All sorts of excuses that we have that we don't have it near us. That is the word of faith which we preach. That what's on your lips and in your heart is the word of faith gospel that Paul taught. Because this is where it matters. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Isn't that a great verse? If you confess and believe that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, the message Paul preached, now he's truncating it, it's not some sort of is that just the incantation I have to you? I just have to say Jesus is Lord and I just have to believe that one little tiny part of the story about the resurrection? No, it's not an incantation. He is pointing you at the material. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's, the, that's a really embarrassing thing. The resurrection of the dead, you know, more people probably believe in Sasquatch, you know, sincerely or ghost stories, sincerely, or that they're going to win the lottery, sincerely, then believe Christ raised from the dead. You say, well, we call it Christianity. No, Christianity talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They know it's part of our cultural story. Stop and think, do you believe in the resurrection? For a man believes with his heart, and so is justified. That means made righteous. I don't know why they translate it justified here when they were talking about righteousness through faith up above. But you are made righteous believing, confessing, excuse me, believing in your heart and confessing with your lips and be saved. And the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. That's that Isaiah passage he quoted earlier. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. Not that, well, that's the wonderful thing about belief. They might laugh at you. What if you always bought winning lottery tickets? Always. Didn't matter what convenience store you walked into, grocery store, whatever. It's so much so, it became a national story that that guy can't buy a losing lottery ticket. And so they, they kidnap you and try to, you know, Make it so that you, no matter what, when you bought it, but you always won. No matter what, you walked in and the tickets you bought, at least $5. Sometimes millions, sometimes five, but you always won. What a great life that would be. I want that life. Well, we have in Christ, where our faith is answered, never shamed, all the time. But I tried it. And it didn't, hold it, you don't try faith. You don't try by making, this is what makes faith a work, is when you're trying to make it create actual belief. You pray the prayer hoping there is a God. Ever hear that phrase? Oh, if there is a God, would you save me? Would you, if there is a God, wouldn't he be a little annoyed? 
that you're going, if there is a God, I don't deal with people like you. You don't question in faith. But I have questions. Well, too bad for you then. You have questions? Knock yourself out. How much do you care? It's not my soul that's damned. There's the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There is the risen nature, the great act in history. His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. That's a strange myth. When I talk to the Mormons, I always let them know. I said, I know you have a weird belief. You're not just flat weird. So do we. Our belief is flat weird too. Not the same weird as yours. But we're both weird believing people. Your story's wrong, mine's right. Yeah, it's weird. I, I'm not going to blame you. Do you believe it? Do you? Against all claims of modern man that Jesus Christ is Lord. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For, quote, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, unquote. It's from Joel 2. I have the quote over here. It should come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. It's a hidden argument for the deity of Christ. Not so hidden to the Jew. Because when you quote Joel 2 and say, calling on the name of the Lord, and you say, Jesus is Lord, you'll notice the word Lord Joel is all caps. It is the name of God. It is the Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. It is God when you say Lord. That's what you're saying about this Jewish guy killed in his 30s 2,000 years ago. You realize how weird that is. I think he's God. No, not I think he's a great teacher. Not I think, wow, I'm amazed by the Sermon on the Mount. No, don't be amazed at the guy. Everybody's amazed at the guy. I hear there's a new Hercules movie out with The Rock. Now, <clears throat> that was an attempt to relate to more popular people here, but I hear it's a good film. You know, big dumb fun, but, you know, good film. What if we were sitting around going, and Hercules? He is God. Not a God, the God. We really admire Hercules. Why, everybody can like Hercules. Everybody can like people in history. I like a lot of people. I like the Duke of Wellington. Very impressed with the Duke of Wellington. I was musing on Cromwell last night with Jeff Purley. I like Cromwell too, though he was a regicide. It's when you step out of that comfortable area of admiring famous religious teachers. Do you believe what Jesus said? No, do you believe that Jesus is the living God, maker of heaven and earth, all that is? This Jewish carpenter that got killed by the Romans, which we can prove, you have taken it a step further. You're in the crazy zone at this point. You will not be put to shame if you believe this. Not because people won't point and laugh. Not that people won't kill you and take your stuff. But God will answer you.
For this is a matter of the path to grace, not the path to popularity. This is not the path to a successful church. This is not the path to whatever it is you're seeking in life, whatever ambitions you have. This is the path to having God's righteousness given to you. He bestows riches on all who call upon him. Verse 12. He bestows riches. But how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? A wonderful passage, you know, it's a rhetorical stretch and how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without a preacher and how are men to preach unless they are sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. We, we don't go, yeah, well, they can't call upon him if they don't believe. But oddly enough, a lot of people are encouraged to call upon him to try it and see. So to try and see. You believe or you don't. You answer the belief. If you believe, you call upon him. When you're told, and you've heard me say recently that I have this recent antipathy developing for trying to convince people. It's not my goal to convince people. So, well, you're trying to be the argument being convincing? Well, maybe, but it's not my goal to convince people. It's my goal to have them understand me. I would trust that if I am understood and I am correct when and what I say, they will be convinced having understood and hearing that it was correct. But so often we are so looking for God or the church or the teacher or whoever to create the faith in you, it's their fault if they didn't. It's their fault that they presented. It says, how say they believe unless they hear? Right? That just gives you an opportunity to believe. You have an opportunity to call. Because remember, belief and calling are the two things. I believe in my heart and I confess with my lips. I call on the name of the Lord. People are thinking they're going to create a negotiation moment, a mediation with God, or a mediation with these people who are trying to increase the numbers in their religious movement. We're not negotiating a settlement. We're telling you what it's about. We tell you about Jesus Christ. We'll tell you about the weirdness of our views. We will tell you that he always rewards, that this lottery ticket that we buy always pays out. We know what that kind of faith is, but we like to have it just temporarily, just for moments, little religious entertainments every so often, where you get your faith stoked. And that's why they have Wednesday night meetings, is because about halfway through the week, whatever you did to them on Sunday wears off. And unless you have a Wednesday night meeting where you can get them all stoked again, That's not faith. That's, yeah, it's, it's kind of, that's creating a religion where you try to get enough works out of them and enough money out of them and enough power or satisfaction out of them. So they raise their kids in it too and then turn them off to Jesus entirely. This is not a negotiation. We're not giving you anything you want. We're trying to find out if you're what God wants. God's looking around going... I did make it hard to find, yes. 
Narrow is the way that leads to life and those that find it are few. I didn't intend for you to just trip over it. Now, you're tripping over the stumbling stone, which is religion and its most obvious incarnation is what you're going to trip over. Offer God works. Sure, not so far. But this message, that the death of our Lord, the death of God, has salvation in it, if I go to God in faith regarding it. Now we're unashamed of it, if we believe it. Do you know what the gospel is? Watch yourself if you do about what you tend to not say, what you're trying to not have be said. Too many Christian ministers who are believers, who are, who are serving the kingdom in many great ways, you can hear them leaving stuff out because it will offend. Well, they, de they desperately want someone to believe, and it's negotiation, right? You, you don't want to tell them about the stuff that they got to believe and do. I love my father's response. Many years ago, this was back in the 70s, early 70s, a young man who was a, a juvenile delinquent. This is what we used to call them. Juvenile delinquent, drug user, smoked cigarettes. Came to my father and said, okay, I want to become a Christian. This was at God's garage. I want to become a Christian, but I want a question answered. I smoke cigarettes. Do I have to give up cigarettes to become a Christian? My father said, no. But since you asked, yes. Because it's not a negotiation. You just made it harder for yourself, you idiot. You could have walked in in faith, believing with a cigarette, three of them hanging out of your lip. But no, you had to ask. You had to make a counteroffer. Okay, do I have to... If anything, do I have to break up with that girl? Yes, you have to break up with that girl. Uh, but I love her. I don't care. You've got to be ready. This has got to be something that's driving you. That's not driving the church to get you. It's driving you. We give you the news. We teach and say in an unashamed way what is the gospel. What the real shame is, is people who realize what the count, they count the cost, out of Luke. They know what's going to end of the Lord encourages you to, yeah, count what's going to cost you. Because the negotiation is, I give you, oh uh, God, everything. My will, my future, my life, my family, everything I think is yours, O oh Lord. I just want to be saved. Okay. That's the deal. No other negotiations. The world will try to shame you. I have here on the side, Romans 1, 16, same book. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, he through faith is righteous shall live, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. 
For what can't be known about God is plain to them, unless, for, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Not only do we just declare the truth of the gospel so that if someone is seeking God, they would know what it is they must believe. But that's already evident to them. <coughs> that's what Paul runs into later in Romans 10. <clears throat> when he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Because you tell people and they don't believe. What are we going to do now? Most of the world doesn't want to believe the truth. And we really want to beat the Muslims, don't we? How are we going to ever beat the Muslims? They're conquering by force. Cutting people's heads off. Now that's a ministry. You said to yourself, well, if only, well, we go back to the old Crusades days when we would do that. Conquer cities, take places, kick butt, take names. Ah, real religion. A man's religion. But people don't believe. You know you don't come up with a real good belief quality at that point, right? You get the Middle Ages. You get the Renaissance. Not a good, not a good time for religion. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from what is heard. If you want to know, faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes from the preaching of Christ. Not soaking people, their emotions or their involvement or whatever else, just trying to convince them, that surround them with enough Christian language that they now start thinking in those terms. You preach Jesus Christ, they hear it, and they believe, or not. Just live with your disbelief. If you don't believe, just say, I'm honest, I don't believe. I wish I did, but I don't. Because this is the message you believe. This is the unashamed declaration. And the whole universe has been declaring it, yelling it in your ear for, oh, I don't know, your lifetime. Because he says here, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For, quote, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. It's not talking about missionaries. It's talking about creation. It's out of Psalm 19. There it is on the side. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, but, and then that quote in Romans, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Faith, the thing to believe, stares us in the faith. It is only shame. Who we are unashamed of or who we are ashamed of standing with, it's whether or not you believe. It's not a matter of whether we convinced anybody. The convincing is right there. All it lacks is eagerness, willingness, desire, problems. The old there are no atheists in foxholes motif. You kind of know your own mortality and you start to pray. We don't want it to be like the lottery ticket purchase. We don't want it just to be while you're in the foxhole. Jesus Christ declares, not that I will save your life in this battle, but I will save your life from hell. Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous 
of those who are not a nation, and a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God has held out the message of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years. A lot of religion has accreted around that message tragically. A lot of just awful, awful Christendom, you know, just the things that embarrass us all. But you know the people of faith. You know them in your own life. You know, the people that believe, just unquestioned, I believe this is the gospel, I believe it. This is my Lord, I believe him. And because of my sins, I called on the name of the Lord, and he healed me. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful. Watch over us. Help us represent unashamedly the gospel that nature preaches, and that in Christ we know and have believed and also preach. In your Son's name, amen.